Now the writer knows that we need to be sure of the promise, certain of our hope if we're actually going to strive. And so he begins by setting out a biblical case, an Old Testament case, proving that God has indeed set out a real hope, a real promise before us. There is actually something to strive for. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and today we begin a message called God's Promised Rest. And uh, Jonathan, I'm kind of intrigued by what we just heard a moment ago. There is something for us to strive for, and you're talking about rest. So are, are you saying that we are to strive for rest? It's an interesting idea, isn't it? It sounds like the very thing we shouldn't need to strive for. But the way in which Hebrews here and elsewhere in Scripture, the way in which the salvation of God is portrayed and spoken of, the way in which heaven is described is sometimes using the imagery and the language of rest. And it is the place of rest, profound rest, not just having a nap, not just having a day off, but the place where we enjoy the finished work of God in its completeness. And uh, and Hebrews says... The Lord has that set before us as a as a gift and as a promise, but we're not there yet, and we need to walk with Christ through all the perils and difficulties of this life before we reach that promised rest. But it's a wonderful prospect for the believer. It is certainly something to uh, look forward to as a believer, but sometimes in the messiness of life today in the just the day-to-dayness of what we're experiencing now it can be hard to keep that in mind when we feel so overwhelmed by today's pressures is there something maybe that uh, you, you remind yourself of or a certain passage that you go to to remind yourself of these truths well i think there are lots of places to go but in a sense one of the most healthy things for us to do is to look to jesus himself who, you know, endured so much, but was raised from the dead and exalted to the Father's right hand. And he's gone before us into heaven itself. And he promises to take us to be with him there. And I think thinking of the Lord Jesus, who we as believers know personally, thinking of him there now, um, and the prospect of joining him in the Father's presence, I think that makes it very, very real. And I think it does us good to contemplate the fact that Jesus is ascended on high and he's gone to prepare a place for us. What a thing for us to think about as we begin our time together here. If you can, grab a Bible and open it to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4 today as we begin God's Promised Rest. Here is Jonathan. Well, let me ask you this morning, what is the right thing to do when you hear a fire alarm? I, I expect you know the answer to that particular question. You make your way Uh, quickly and safely and calmly out of the building by route of the designated exit. That is the right thing to do. I think we all know that. I hope we all know that. I was away at a ministry conference this week, and during the night there was a terrific storm that kept cutting the power. And every time the power went out, the fire alarm in the hotel went off for a few moments and then went quiet again. Now, at breakfast the following morning, I was having a fairly sleepy conversation with the others who were there at the conference, and I discovered that of all the delegates, of all these pastors who were at the conference, only one had actually made his way out of his room in response to the alarm. No one else had taken the alarm seriously enough to make the correct response. If you spoke of lying in their beds and thinking about making a response, 
but no one else had rushed out in the pouring rain to await further instructions. Not very impressive, you might say. And of course, you would be absolutely right. What is the right response to hearing the alarm? It's obvious, even if many failed to make it. The issue at the heart of our passage today is very simply this. What is the correct response to hearing the Word of God? When the sound of God's Word reaches our ears, what are we to do? That's the issue. That's the question we've got to grapple with. Now, the writer of Hebrews is very mindful of the fact that a former generation of the people of God heard God's Word but failed to make the correct response, didn't respond with faith. And he's urgently concerned that we should not fall into the same error, that we should not make the same mistake. You'll, you'll remember the storyline of the history of the people of God. We, we thought about it a couple of weeks ago. The people of Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and were on their way to their very own land, a land that God had promised to give to them. As they approached the land, spies were sent into the land to scope it out. And two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, returned with the news that the land was good. It was a very, very good land. They reminded the people of God's word of promise that He would indeed give them this land. But the people took fright when they heard reports of the strength of the people of the land, giants in the land, and they lost faith. They disbelieved the promises, and they fell under the judgment of God. None of that adult generation of disbelieving Israelites was allowed to enter the land. Instead, they spent 40 long years wandering in the wilderness, and they died there. It is a sad tale. It is a cautionary tale. And the writer of Hebrews here sees a parallel with believers in his day. Chapter 4 and verse 2 at the beginning of our passage for good news, that is the gospel word, good news, came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, or perhaps better translated, they were not united by faith with those they heard. That is, they were not united by faith with Joshua and Caleb who spoke these gospel words to them, these good words to them. They heard the message, they heard the promise, but they did not respond to God's Word in faith. That's the great tragedy of the story. And the writer doesn't want us in our day to repeat it. And so now in chapter 4, he sets out to show us what it's going to look like to respond to the Word of God with faith when we hear it. What must we do if we are to respond rightly when we hear God's living Word even today? Well, two things, two responses, and the first one is this, we must strive toward the goal. When we hear the Word of God, we must strive toward the goal. Punchline comes in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's an awful thing to have tickets for a longed-for getaway, a longed-for vacation, but to discover that those tickets won't actually get you anywhere. You may have seen on the news that the world's oldest travel company went bankrupt. Thomas Cook began life in 1841, booking railway journeys in England, and grew to be a global travel giant with its own airline attached to it. 
But on September the 23rd of this year, it went into compulsory liquidation. The planes were all grounded, and thousands of passengers were stranded far from home. The UK government was forced to launch its largest repatriation program since World War II, flying home stranded citizens, and other countries have been having to make similar arrangements. Now, just imagine that on the 22nd of September, you invested some of your savings in buying an all-inclusive vacation, the vacation of your dreams, five-star, sold by none other than Thomas Cook. You printed out your tickets on your computer at home. You went to bed that night dreaming of the long beach days ahead of you. Well, when the news breaks the next morning, you realize that the tickets for your vacation aren't worth the paper they're printed on. It's an empty promise now. It is a vain hope. If you and I are going to invest our lives doing what verse 11 calls us to do, striving for the hope set before us in the gospel, the hope of eternal life in the Lord's own presence, the hope of His eternal rest, to use the language of the passage, if we're going to be striving, we'd better be certain that the promise actually means something, that it's substantial, that it's true. Now, the writer knows that we need to be sure of the promise, certain of our hope if we're actually going to strive. And so he begins by setting out a biblical case, an Old Testament case, proving that God has indeed set out a real hope, a real promise before us. There is actually something to strive for, and he means to prove it to us from the Scriptures. Now, you see, if you were one of the first readers of Hebrews, you might look at the Exodus experience that the writer is recalling here. You might look at that journey into the promised land, and you might make this basic observation. You might observe that the people of Israel have actually already arrived in the promised land. I mean, there was that 40-year delay way back when, but by the time that Hebrews is written, by the time that the New Testament is being written, the people have already been in the promised land for many centuries. So what is the writer kind of fussing about here? He can hardly be threatening us with the warning that we won't reach Canaan. We're already there, they might say. Well, that is, of course, an intelligent point. It's a valid point. And to answer it, the writer turns back to the Old Testament to demonstrate and to prove that Canaan was never the ultimate destination of the people of God. The Lord always had a greater promise and a greater hope in store for His people. And it's that promise, that destination, that hope that we need to strive for as Christian believers. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message today called God's Promise Rest. And glad that you've joined us. We're going to get back to this message from Hebrews chapter 4 in just a moment, so hope you'll stay tuned. You know, there is no source that draws us closer to the Lord Jesus than the Gospels. So how could you dive deeper into the Gospel pages and get to know Jesus better? Well, we'd love to send you a book that can help you do just that. It's called Daily Readings from All Four Gospels, it's written by J.C. Ryle and a book that Jonathan highly recommends. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thanks for your financial support this month. Give a gift of any amount, and we're going to say thank you by sending you daily readings from all four Gospels. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. All right, back to the message. Here is Jonathan. 
Many years after the Exodus experience, King David wrote a psalm, a famous psalm, Psalm 95, reflecting on all that happened in the wilderness. And repeatedly throughout this section in Hebrews, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, the writer quotes that psalm for us. It's, it's obviously very important for him here. He quoted that psalm at length for us back in chapter 3. You see it there in verse 7. Just notice with me, we should just remember what it says Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now quoting the psalm, chapter 3 and verse 7, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." The writer quotes Psalm 95 there, and he keeps on coming back to it here in chapter 4. And what he wants to do for us now is to show us that King David believed that this promised rest of God, it's still open. It's still available. There is still for us a promised rest beyond the land, a rest that is greater than the land, something bigger, something better, something more. Now, at first glance, the argument here in chapter 4 can look a little bit convoluted, a little bit difficult to follow, but please don't be put off. Please be encouraged. It's actually not too complicated when we slow down and just follow the logic a little bit, and I want to do that together. See, the writer thinks deeply about what David says here in Psalm 95. He thinks deeply about the fact that David, so long after Israel had actually entered the land, hundreds of years after, and he's mindful of the time scale. Just notice there verse 7. He, he thinks deeply about the fact that David, hundreds of years after the Exodus, issues the warning in the psalm, in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, be careful today. Well, if David is sitting in his study in Jerusalem or wherever he is, warning people today about being refused entry to God's rest, if he's doing that in the here and now of David's own day, then this much must be true. The ultimate rest of God, the ultimate place of God's salvation, is not the promised land. See, David's already there but he sees there is yet a future hope to come. He sees that there is a promised rest into which believers can enter and from which unbelievers will be barred. And so now the writer of Hebrews, seeing that in Psalm 95, he gets interested, he gets intrigued, and he starts thinking about this whole idea of rest, divine rest. He starts thinking in biblical terms. He thinks about the Word and where else it comes up in the Scriptures. And he starts wondering, where have I seen that word rest and that idea of rest before? Where else does the Bible speak about God's rest? And then it comes to him. One of the most famous passages in all the Bible talks about the rest of God. We don't need to turn to it, but we might remember Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. When God finished all His work in creation, we read this, and Hebrews quotes it in verse 4, and God rested from all His works. You see, the idea of a divine rest, it goes right back to the creation, and then the penny kind of drops. On the seventh day of creation, God stopped working because the job was finished, and He entered into the joy of His rest. 
And the invitation God gives us in His covenant promises, the invitation He gives us in the gospel message is to enter that state of rest with Him, to enter into the joy of work completed, to enter into the fullness of all that God has planned and all that God has purposed for us. And so Hebrews wants to tell us this. He wants to tell us that the land that God brought the people into all those years ago, the land that Moses was leading them to and that Joshua later led them to enter, the land of Canaan was wonderful, but it was never the ultimate goal. Yes, they, they rested from their journey there. They had security there. They enjoyed a measure of peace there. They enjoyed something of the Lord's presence there through the temple. But it wasn't the final destination of the salvation plans of God. No, it was a foretaste and an illustration of a far better place, a far better destination, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, the ultimate rest, the ultimate salvation rest of God, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on there in Psalm 95 through David. He wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The goal of salvation, the ultimate goal, it was never merely a piece of real estate in the Middle East. The goal of the salvation plan was to bring God's people to join God himself in his eternal rest in this place and this state of joy, being where God is, knowing that all is finished, knowing that all is complete, knowing that all is well, resting, not, not being inactive, not being bored, but resting, no more labor, nothing more needing to be achieved or accomplished because God has done all things well. And now through the gospel, we're invited to join him in the experience and the enjoyment of all that he's achieved. We're invited to join him in his place, the heavenly Jerusalem, his city above. Well, friends, I take it that we all want to go there. We'd be fools not to want to enjoy God's promised rest in heaven, his joyous rest in his new creation. But the writer is just so mindful that a former generation received the good news, received the promises of God. They received the offer of entry into the promised land, but they didn't actually make it in. And the parallel with believers today is just too haunting for him. Back to verse 2 again. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those they heard. They heard the good news, but it didn't benefit them simply because they didn't believe. And so the exhortation, so the instruction, so the call is very simple, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. On Thursday, we had a service of thanksgiving here at the church for our oldest living member at the time, a lady who attended the first meeting in 1931 when she was 11 years old, a lady who walked with the Lord as part of this church all her life, really, a saint who's now completed the journey, finished the race, persevered to the end in this pilgrimage of faith, who's finally arrived in the eternal rest of God. 
Now, that's what the writer wants to see happen in each and every one of our lives. He wants to see us keep going. He wants to see us persevere right to the end, and so he calls us, he exhorts us, let us strive. Let us make every effort. Our son recently made it onto the school cross-country team. From my own perspective, I've come to see that that is both good news and bad news at the same time. It's good news because it's a very nice achievement for him and a great opportunity. I'm very pleased for him. But less conveniently, he has decided to uh, nominate me as his training partner. <laughs> and that right there, that is the bad news in the story. He's decided that getting up early on these chilly mornings to go for a run with me is the best way to train and the best way to improve. And I'm, I'm beginning to realize that he means business. We went for our first run the other day. And for me, you know, going for a run in the neighborhood, which, which happens occasionally, going for a run in the neighborhood involves a certain amount of rather strained jogging and normally also a fair bit of walking just to kind of recover. In, in an ideal world, a morning run in our neighborhood might involve a brief stop in the local uh, coffee shop and so on. But for our son, I've discovered that running actually means running. <laughs> and he means to finish the course. On my own, I would have stopped way before we did, but he was determined, and we got all the way to the end of our planned route. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he then insisted that we do it all over again the next morning. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find verse 11 to be quite a surprising verse. If the rest of God the rest, the eternal rest of God, refers to the place of eternal salvation, to heaven, ultimately to the new creation. It seems strange to me that God in His Word would call us to strive to enter that rest, to push hard, to run hard, to persevere right to the end. I, I, I mean, we're gospel people. We, we believe that we are saved by grace through faith and not through any of our own effort, and that's true. And more than that, we believe that once we are truly saved, we cannot lose our salvation, and that's true. But if those things are true, why would we need to strive? Surely the Christian can just kind of sit back and relax. We might imagine that we should be able to do that. We might like to imagine that we should be able to do that, but the Bible never says to us that because our salvation is secure in Christ, we should just kind of kick into neutral and coast along in the Christian life until we reach the end. No, perhaps a little surprisingly to us, the Bible insists that the truly saved person will strive to be faithful will keep running the race of the Christian life with the help of the Holy Spirit, striving to stay true to Jesus right to the very end. Surprising as it may seem to people like us who might prefer to coast, that is actually a mark of the true believer. That is a mark of a person of genuine faith. And so, friends, let me ask you this morning, when you hear the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus, when you hear it, as you're hearing it even now, does it spur you on to follow Him, to trust Him, to obey Him? Do you take His Word in your heart and say, yes, this week, by the help of the Spirit of God, I'm going to give my all to trusting the promises of Jesus and obeying the Word of Jesus. But by the Lord's own help, 
This is going to be a week during which I press on and don't give up, during which I long for heaven and look forward to heaven, during which I place all my trust in the promises of Jesus. With all my failings and all my sin, despite all the ways I trip up along the race and we trip up, don't we? Yeah, I want to keep going. I want to keep following. I want to reach the destination. Now that is the heart cry of the true believer. And I hope it's your heart cry. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called God's Promise Rest from the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue this message next time, so I hope you make it a point to tune in. But if you know you're going to miss the broadcast, you're not going to be by your radio, you might want to jot this website down if you don't have it bookmarked already. And then go ahead and bookmark it next time you're online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. And there you can stream the program or download the MP3 for free. Our website address again is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, for Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening today. And I hope you'll tune in next time.